Hi, I'm Richard Niles, as frosty as an ice cream cone, as icy as a guitar moan, and as chilly as a coat du Rhone, with the coolest ever episode of The Arrangers, the series where we introduce the men behind the music, the architects of the scores that inspired legions of fans back in the nightclubs, dance halls, and bedrooms of the 20th century. And tonight I'm totally jazzed to focus the spotlight on an arranging giant of the 20th century. Ladies and gentlemen, I am quite seriously honored to give you the visionary of voicings, the revolutionary of rhythm, the swami of swing, the baron of bop, and the midwife of the birth of the cool, the definitively hip Mr. Pete Rugolo. I was so interested in modern music in those days, you know, loving Bartok and Stravinsky and everybody. And I thought to myself, there's no reason why a jazz band can't be playing some more modern sounds, you know, some distance and some tone colors. Pete was a very, very, very adventurous writer. He was a very huge fan of European classical music, especially Stravinsky and Bartok and his composers like that. And he would sneak things like that into the arrangements of, of the, the for the jazz band. Italians, as a general tendency, have a warm kind of personality. I mean, I, there's plenty of exceptions, obviously, but as, as a national characteristic, a certain warmth is common in Italians. Of course, he's more than Italian, he's Sicilian. Pete's always been a very kind person, and he's terribly well-liked. Pete has influenced me and a lot of people by saying, don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to do anything. Write it, and then if it doesn't work, then fix it. That was Pete, and that's always been Pete. He's always ahead of everybody else. When I was a kid, one of the big bands came to town, and I recognized their arranger standing in front of the band, and I spoke to him. And he says, well, come on, let's go up and sit in the balcony and listen. So we sat in the balcony and listened, spent the whole evening with this man. And when you're young and shy, if a guy says, buzz off, kid, that could hurt you very deeply. So I was at a party that Henry Mancini had a few years ago. I ran into Pete, hadn't seen him in a long time. I said, by the way, Pete, I've got a story to tell you. And I told him the story. I said, do you know who that arranger was? And he said, no. I said, it was you. I think all the people that I met were nice to me. I met Duke Ellington, who was my favorite. In fact, he would call me four o'clock in the morning and says, when are you going to write something for me? You know, he was always after me. And uh, I couldn't I couldn't bear myself to write him because he was my favorite band, and I said, suppose he doesn't like it or something. Pete also said he never found the guts to write anything for his other idol, Frank Sinatra. But the list of stars he did work with reads like a who's who of popular music of the time. June Christie, Nat King Cole, Mel Torme, Harry Belafonte, Woody Herman, Charlie Barnett, Dizzy Gillespie, Eddie Fisher, The Four Freshmen, Miles Davis, and of course, his great mentor, Stan Kenton. 
Born in Sicily on Christmas Day, 1915, Rugolo spent only five years on the Mediterranean island before his grandfather made him an offer he couldn't refuse, sending enough money to make the move to the States with his parents. Pete remembers his first glimpse of the Statue of Liberty like it was yesterday, but they were to settle on the West Coast in Santa Rosa, California, a place that quickly became his home. My dad, at that time, had a uh, degree in stonemason, which he got in Italy, but when he came here, he couldn't get work as a stonemason. And so uh, my uncle was a shoemaker, so he taught my father the shoe business, and he, he uh, became a shoemaker. He had a shoe store in Santa Rosa, and he did a wonderful job. I remember when he fixed shoes, they were like new. We were very poor people. My dad just finally bought a little house in Santa Rosa. My mother worked. We all worked, uh, I remember picking hops uh, at the fields, when, whenever the fruit was apples and whatever. Uh, my mother worked in a cannery. We all had to work to make a living there. My dad didn't make a lot of money on the shoe store. The way I started playing all the instruments was that my dad would fix people's shoes. It was like out in the country, and a lot of them couldn't pay him, and they would bring a mandolin. One time I remember I got a mandolin, and I started playing the mandolin, and one time I got a banjo, and I started playing the banjo. Then the last thing, somebody, they must have owed my dad a few hundred dollars because they bought a beautiful grand piano. Later on, uh, when I was a little older, there was another small town called Petaluma close to Santa Rosa, and I would hitchhike and, and I found a teacher there, so every Saturday I would take a, a piano lesson. She taught more or less uh, from the jazz books. So I never did really study classical piano unless until I went to San Francisco State College, where I had to uh, get my degree and, and pass a test. So I had to study piano from a teacher because I had to play some Beethoven or something for my graduation, you know. Then I decided, I heard that Darius Mio was uh, going to teach at Bills College, which was a girls' school. So I applied for it and they accepted me and I was the first boy to go to uh, Mills College. And I studied with Darius Mio for two years and got my master's there. He's one of the few who got formal training. Most notably, he studied with uh, Darius Mio, the uh, noted French composer. Brad Bigelow is the curator of SpaceAgePop.com. Rugolo, among others, studied with him and was distinctively influenced by him. It was just more or less private studying with him. There wasn't get together and we'd talk and he'd give me some assignments to do, like let's write a music to this poem or something, you know. And he just criticized, he says, see you did the melody too much here, or you went to repeated it too much, but it wasn't really a teaching thing. We just got together at least a couple of times a week and we talked, you know. Some have said that uh Rugolo may be Milo's uh, prime disciple. I did study 
with another teacher there because I was getting my master's and I remember studying all the old master Palestrina and everything. So I did do a lot of uh, other studying besides with him. shown an interest in complex harmonies and complex uh, orchestrations, building upon modern rhythms, and that was certainly, uh, Mio was certainly distinctively uh, known for introducing jazz into contemporary music. Rugolo couldn't have wished for a wider grounding in music. He'd sit studying the scores of Bartok, Schoenberg, and Stravinsky while listening to the recordings of Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford. And what was even more amazing was that he found a way to link the two, bridging the apparent gulf between two distant camps of serious and popular music. Stan Kenton offered the first platform that Rugolo used to take off on a stratospheric career. Their relationship was like that of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. They shared a vision, demonstrating a real understanding of each other's artistic goals. Andrew Homsey is professor of music at Concordia University, Montreal. Pete Rugolo made his mark with Stan Kenton, just as Kenton was getting his foot into the music world and really starting to establish himself. I first met him, he was at the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. I got enough nerve one, one day to bring about three or four arrangements with me and I w went backstage and I asked to meet him and he was very nice, he saw me. And I said to Stan, I have some arrangements here that I made. I would sure like for you to go and try them out. And I said, but if you don't use them, please give them back, because I copied them all myself. You know, I got a big kick out of that. And I, I was still in the Army then. And I, uh, I didn't hear from him. A month or so later, I got a call in the Army barracks. It's Stan Kenton calling Pete Ruglow. So I ran up there and talked to him. He says, we just finally went over your arrangements. Vito Musa said, uh, to uh, remember that kid in San Francisco? Why don't you try his arrangements? So they tried my three or four arrangements there, and he really liked them. He says, you do write like me, only you write more modern, you write better. So he says, boy, whenever you get out of the Army, I'd like to uh, hire you. From there, I, I, uh, we were transferred to San Pedro, I think close to L.A., and then one time Stan was playing at the Palladium. And I went again with a few more arrangements, and I gave them to him, and he liked them, and he says, boy, whenever you get out of the Army, the job's yours. So that's what happened. I got him, called him. He was in New York. He sent me the money, and I joined him at the Meadowbrook in New York. And from there, and I stayed with him. It was five years, I think. I went. I was on the road with him all those years.
Gene Lees is the author of Arranging the Score. Pete was one of the main architects of the early Stan Kenton sound, and consequently, I think it's affected brass and big band writing ever since across the board. Certainly, Stan Kenton deserves tremendous credit for his openness to the creative process. And uh, Rugolo knew how to balance uh, the need for something that was both listenable and of interest to the to the audience that Kenton had, which was more willing to go down musical paths that the, the mainstream dance audience. Uh, in fact, it's often the, the, the remark was said of Kenton's audience that they were people who were willing to stand in front of the band instead of dance in front of the band. Stephanie Stein Kreese is the author of a new biography of Gil Evans. He was very influenced by Mio and the Impressionists and a whole orchestral sensibility, which is what he brought to his work with Kenton. I think he really helped mold the, the band, the Kenton band, into what made it such a successful band in the 40s. I would get, he never had time to write anymore, but every time we'd get to a hotel and we have a few days, we'd get up there and find a piano and we would discuss different arrangements and he, he, we called them use, uh, make menus and he'd say, well, let's start off with eight bars of Vito and we'd start off here and do this and that. We wrote a few tunes together, you know, collaboration, we wrote a few things together. Most of the time, he just let me alone. He says, he liked what I did. He says, go ahead, you know what to do. Most of the time, whatever I got an idea of, and I called it Impressionism or whatever, he, he liked it. He never changed hardly a note. You know, he didn't say, oh no, that's, that's too modern. It doesn't fit my band. He, he loved it. Bud Shank is a legend of cool jazz saxophone. Pete was also uh, very much involved in the Neophonic Orchestra, which Stan put together in the middle 60s, uh, which just played in Los Angeles at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And it was a band that did not have strings, but it was uh, a regular jazz band of which all the woodwind players doubled on flutes and clarinets and oboes and whatever. It was similar to what the Innovations in Modern Music uh, Orchestra was, which was 15 years prior. but. Uh, it was more challenging because the concerts were always on Monday night at the Chandler Pavilion because that was the off night down there and that's the only time they would let the jazz guys in, right? Every concert had brand new music. So on Saturday morning we would start rehearsals and had to prepare a full two-hour concert of brand new music which had never been played before. There's no symphony orchestra around that does things like that. And this is a whole two-hour concert, not of one composer, but usually four or five composers, four composers probably a per concert. This is the opportunity that Pete and Stan and all those writers that period gave to us as musicians. It made musicians out of us.
never told me what to do. I was on my own, and I just would get all these ideas. And uh, so I started uh, writing arrangements like that uh, for Stan, and he was wonderful. He never said, no, that's too wild or anything. And the guys in the band at first didn't know because they, they didn't swing as much. They, the guys in the band always only liked the basic type bands. They learned how to read 5-4 bars, and uh, at first they thought they had wrong notes, you know, when I was writing the Disney things, and then they got used to them, and then, then they enjoyed playing the ranges. But at first, like, to them, it was kind of a, why are we doing this kind of music? It's supposed to be a jazz band, you know? And Stan was wonderful. He, he liked what I wrote, and uh, he recorded everything I wrote. It was wonderful. I think there is a certain attitude coming from Kenton's vision and Pete Rugolo subscribed very much to Kenton's vision and the two worked very well together in this. Pete Rugolo is so much attached to that. His fortunes or his, or his place in the history will, will rise and fall as the general Kenton concept is, uh, is accepted and rejected. He was a sweetheart. When I, when I moved here to L.A. from New York, I came here, I didn't have a nickel. And then I got a call from a, a publisher and he says, Pete, uh, your royalties are really good. And if you want, I can give you so much a month until you get settled. You know, I, I was trying to find work. I was ghosting. I was doing things for Les Baxter for $50 in arrangement. Anything to make work because I didn't have a cent. And so when uh, the publisher called me, he said, Pete, uh, we worked it out that I know that you want to get an apartment and stuff uh, where you can, I can give you like $200 a month to live on. Now, many years later went by, and I finally saw the publisher. And he says, Pete, I've got to tell you now, that was Stan's money. He, he was supporting you. He did things like that. He never told me. I was never able to thank him. Pete Rugolo's work with Kenton was to influence later generations of jazz men, especially Don Ellis and Dave Brubeck, whose compositions incorporating odd time signatures were based on Rugolo's early mesmerizing metrical mobility. After a few years on the road with the Kenton band, Rugolo got to settle in his beloved New York, where he was snapped up by Capitol Records to serve as their arranger and A&R man. Some have said his pop work lessened his importance to jazz, but I'd say the sophisticated jazz elements in his pop work exposed a much wider audience to jazz sounds and therefore made his impact greater. He worked with June Christie, Harry Belafonte, The Four Freshmen, and a rather special group of musicians who gave birth to something kinda cool. The birth of the cool, which is really a phenomenal recording if you look at the talents were involved with that, it's like everyone remotely connected with that became a distinctive force within jazz and popular music. Pete Rugolo was involved from the Capitol and bringing in that group and getting Capitol to record that session. 
I heard them rehearsing down at the, in the village one day, and they were going to play there that night. So I went down to hear them, and I liked I liked the idea of his band, and I liked the sound. So I, I personally signed them, and I, I got them got them to come to. We made some dates, and we did the first session. Nobody knew it was going to be that popular, you know, until they finally Capitol released them later. It was a thing that uh, we all were. We loved doing it, you know, because the band sounded so he had all the good players. He had Jerry Mulligan and all the good guys. None of us thought they were going to be that popular, you know, until they were put out as the Breath of the Cool. Even though the music was done by Jerry Mulligan and by Miles and Gil Evans and uh, John Lewis, but uh, Pete was responsible for that album being done. This was 1949. He never got the credit for that because that album was a that seed or an album in those days was a very 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 important part of the development of jazz music. In fact, that's what's really influenced or started what was called later called West Coast jazz. He felt like the Capitol label was very lacking in what was going on in modern jazz. So he really helped bring in the birth of the cool by signing people like Miles Davis and the Miles Davis Nonette. I think he was very formative in his role to just see what was going on with Miles Davis and so forth. So in his way, I think he was a great contributor to nursing in a different style of arranging in the 50s, which was almost the post-bop thing. You know, a producer can be very important in, in creating opportunities for things to happen. And I think we owe a lot to Rugolo for understanding the importance and the potential of what Miles Davis was doing at that time. As an arranger and as a composer, Rugolo would have recognized very much the, the contributions of Gil Evans and Jerry Mulligan. I asked him, you know, what was it about this music that attracted him? Because some of the people were really baffled about what, you know, who were these post-bop, post-big band, the music was subtle, it was contrapuntal, but that was very much where Ruggala had come from. So he was very interested in the use of the way the soloist could be sort of interwoven with an orchestral background, whether it was a nonette or a larger orchestra. And he said that um, what really attracted him to the Miles Davis nonette was also the fact that they were great arrangers and composers, but they were also great players. So Jerry Mulligan was involved with that, John Lewis. But he did say, for all the legacy of those Birth of the Cool recordings, he said at the time they were put out as single 78s and they all bombed. You know, like nobody really knew what to do with them. But the musicians were very hip to them. And then, of course, they became, you know, just so influential through later jazz during the 50s. I produced them all. I did stayed in the booth, and I really was tough with them. I made them do things over and over until they were, I liked them just right. But Stan was that way. He would take a half-hour tuning and make sure every note was right, you know. And if I didn't like a, if I didn't get enough saxophone, we'd do another take. So we, we spent time in recording those things. That's why they're so good. To have a mainstream label like Capitol release that groundbreaking recording was a pretty bold venture, and I'm sure that Rugolo's 
openness to aggressive and innovative sounds had a lot to do with that. After making his mark with Capitol, Rugolo decided the time was right to move back west and settle in Los Angeles. But as alto sax legend Bud Shank recalls, it wasn't the smoothest of rides. The funniest thing that I remember about that, that Pete had never, ever, ever driven an automobile. So he bought this great big Lincoln Continental, gorgeous car, and got a, took a driver's test, got a driver's license, and totaled the car. And that was the end of that. So <laughs> Living as close as he did to Hollywood, it wasn't long before Rugolo found his way into the studios, scoring hit TV series like The Fugitive, The Untouchables, and Richard Diamond. Constantly in demand, his arranging skills were hot property. In 1959, Hank Mancini did a TV series called Peter Gunn, which took the country by storm, in which we were very happy because the whole score was based on jazz music. Well, Pete, right after that, got a TV show called Richard Diamond, which was a very similar series to Peter Gunn, although it never got the status that it did. But he did his Pete Brugolo thing on this Richard Diamond scores. For the popular audience, certainly his TV works really stand out in terms of their complexity, uh, their use of challenging uh, rhythms. They're really complex little pieces. Like most of the great arrangers, Rugolo also composed many of his own works with unusual instrumentation like ten trombones and two pianos and ten trumpets and two guitars. Ever adventurous, he was playing with the then new concept of stereo. He worked with Peggy Lee and Mel Torme, but of all the singers he worked with, it was this golden-voiced crooner who left the lasting impression. The girls I knew had sad and sullen gray faces with distant gay traces that used to be there, you could see where they'd been washed away by too many through the day, 12 o'clock tales. Then you came along with the one uh, thing that I'm proud of is Lush Life. And when it first came out, Capitol didn't like it, they didn't release it for a whole year. And they finally put it out in a, in a, as a B side and back up of some real commercial tune. And the jockeys are the people start liking Lush Life. And I love the tune. I've kind of uh, enlarged the introduction. I made it like twice as long, gay places and all that stuff. You know, I, mean, I made like a tone poem out of it. Again, I was wrong. In some ways, I think that an arranger is like a fine jeweler that makes a diamond ring. And what you want to do is you want to set that diamond in such a fashion so that it catches all the facets of the light coming through from different angles. And so an arranger is very much like that when you're writing for singers because you're working with the song and you want to set that song. You want to develop its facets and reflect them uh, both through the intrinsic qualities of the melody of the song and the artist that is singing them. 
All I care is to smile in spite of it. I'll forget you, I will. Extremely lush thanks for taking part to the master, Pete Rugolo. Thanks also to writers Gene Lees and Stephanie Stein Kreese, Sax Hepcat Bud Shank, Professor Andrew Homsey, and webmaster Brad Bigelow. And lifetime thanks to the biggest lush of all, my producer Elizabeth Clark. Next week it's the final show in the series, and we're going out with a little razzmatazz paying homage to the arranger, composer, and showbiz mogul, Quincy Jones. Until then, I'll remain very, very humble like Richard Niles, hoping, almost begging you to join me right here on Radio Richard.